You might uh, keep a hold of your hymnal or grab it once again and turn to page 671. We're on paragraph 6 this week of the first chapter of the 1689 Confession. And uh, I'm titling this sermon, Scriptural Sufficiency Detailed. That is, uh, this, this paragraph is all focused on getting the details right as we talk about Scripture being sufficient. What are we talking about? And um, what are some necessary nuances we should, we should have when we talk about it that way? So, Scriptural Sufficiency Detailed. Uh, we will go go through this to make sure we understand what the confession and what the scripture it's reflecting is saying. Uh, then I will have some applications before we end. So, paragraph six: the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for His own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life, is either expressly set down or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture, unto which nothing at any time is to be added, whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. Nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the Word, and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the Church, common to human actions and societies, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. So, first of all, breaking this paragraph down in its themes, first of all, we're going to look at the scope of the sufficient scriptures. The scope of the sufficient scriptures. What's the scope of this sufficiency we're talking about? Then we will talk about the finality of the sufficient scriptures, just touch on that. Then the necessity of the Spirit's light. And then, fourth, the role of natural light. The role of natural light. So that first little section of the paragraph says, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for what? For his, God's own glory, For man's salvation, faith, and life, the whole counsel of God concerning those things, all those things, all things necessary for those things, is either expressly, that is explicitly set down, explicitly written, or necessarily contained in the Holy Scripture. That is, even if you don't uh, notice it on a first read-through, it is... um, it is directly implied or contained somehow in Holy Scripture. Uh, the Confession uh, footnoted two Scripture texts for this section of the paragraph. First of all, Second Timothy three fifteen through seventeen, which we'll naturally go to over and over again when we talk about doctrine of Scripture, and Galatians. Well, Galatians 1, 8, and 9, that's actually for a little later. Um, so, going back to 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting in verse 14, um, Paul says to Timothy, But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it, 
And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, that's sacred scripture, is what he's saying, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And not just not just somewhat profitable, but you still need other stuff. No. He goes on, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. There's a thoroughness to how Scripture equips us for everything we need, as the confession says, for God's glory, for man's salvation, for man's faith and life. It's all in there. Sam Waldron mentions that the phrase where it says, or necessarily contained in Holy Scripture, uh, it's equivalent, at least somewhat equivalent, to the phrase in the Westminster Confession that is actually intended to clarify. The Westminster had said before this, uh, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture. As Sam Waldron says, "What what may be by sound logic deduced from Scripture, that is to say, what is necessarily contained in it, has the authority of Scripture itself. Um, Doctrine of the Trinity, for instance. You have to put together everything that Scripture says and uh, not ignore the total picture that then you get from Scripture. Right? It's necessarily contained in Scripture. Now, uh, there's a long quotation. I'm not going to to read it all. I'll I'll try to just give you the the gist of it, but uh, if you want more historical detail and um, exact nuance, all that, go get Jim Renahan's new book on the confession. And he talks about, so why did they change the wording when the Baptist's confession was usually just following the wording of the Westminster, the Presbyterian confession? Why did they change the wording slightly here? From, uh, um, well, as the Westminster had said, uh, or by good and necessary consequence may be deduced from Scripture, Baptists changed that to anything necessarily contained in Scripture. Basically, it boils down probably to the fact that um, the Presbyterians had talked about good and necessary consequence, but there were very specific meanings sometimes to those words. And when it came down to it, many Puritans, including Baptists, they could accept necessary consequences as binding, but not what people would call good consequences. Um... So, uh, necessarily contained, as Renahan says, probably signals a desire to ensure that theological propositions are grounded in revelation, not human reason alone. The necessary consequence of truth is truth and will remain consonant with truth. Um, (laughs) Even Joel Beakey, if you look in his Puritan theology, he kind of hammers the Baptists here because he says, yeah, and that's why they don't accept infant baptism because they don't accept good and necessary consequences of scripture (laughs) and that may have been something behind the change of wording for the baptists because they got hammered with that wording so much saying okay if it's if it's actually um necessarily contained in the holy scripture sure we agree to it but we have to be careful what people say is just a good consequence a good uh what a good logic that they think they're getting from scripture we have to be careful about how far we go with that beyond what Scripture actually says. That's their point. Now back to Sam Waldron. He says, um, 
Now, talking about Scripture's sufficiency here, what is it sufficient for? He says, it's often said that the Scriptures are sufficient for showing us the way of salvation. This is liable to be misunderstood today because of the minimizing mentality abroad, which is intent on reducing the way of salvation to its barest elements. That is, if you talk to people about the way of salvation, what do they think of? Maybe just what's in a gospel tract, uh, maybe a very simple outline of Jesus died and rose again for sinners, so you need to believe in him. Um, but that that really is too minimalistic. Um, it really reduces way too much. But Waldron goes on, he says, It surely must be clear that such an understanding of the sufficiency of Scripture is a deviation from the historic Reformation understanding articulated in the Westminster Confession. All things necessary for his own glory, man's salvation, faith, and life is far more than the four spiritual laws. It is nothing less than sufficiency for the redemption of man, both individually and corporately, in the whole ethical and religious sphere of life that is asserted. He says we must reflect on the breadth of this assertion. When we remember that the area of religion and ethics is the supreme sphere of human life and knowledge, we become increasingly aware of the magnitude and value of this doctrine of the sufficiency of the scriptures. Though it is not an assertion of the omnisufficiency, the all-sufficiency of the scriptures, it is saying that they are sufficient to be the basis and starting point for every other scientific endeavor. The scriptures are not a textbook of biology, but they sufficiently provide those ethical and religious perspectives basic to any proper science of biology. The Bible is not sufficient for all that we do, but it does speak to all we do sufficiently as to the glory of God, the way of salvation, and the path of duty. End of quote. Think about that very carefully. It's true, in a sense, Scripture is not sufficient to tell you how to do every little thing in your life exactly. We do have properly so manuals for other things we accomplish, right? It's pretty obvious. Uh, scripture is not a textbook for every endeavor, exactly. However, Scripture speaks to everything we do. Because whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we must do all to the glory of God. And so Scripture tells us all that's necessary for the glory of God and for our redemption, our salvation, and for faith and life. <laughs> so our relationship with God and everything that touches, which should be everything, Scripture is sufficient for that, to reveal that to us. And so, for instance, you'll have this false dichotomy, you know, um, this false dilemma. Well, Scripture isn't a science textbook, so Scripture should, should not... Um, Scripture can't tell us, therefore, whether evolution is true or not. <laughs> or whether it, um, it can't tell us issues of, of scientifically of gender or something. Well, again, false dilemma. Scripture says things which must govern and set boundaries on how we go about science and how we understand uh, the data that's out there and the evidence how we put it all together in submission to the creator who made all of this for us to study. So be careful not to go too far either direction in either severely limiting the Bible's sufficiency or in, in saying, well, I have the Bible, so 
I don't need to get a degree in my field, for instance. <laughs> Few people go that far, but you get the idea. So that's the scope of the sufficient scriptures. Everything necessary, all things necessary for God's own glory, for man's salvation, faith, and life. It's either expressly set down or it's necessarily contained. It can be directly deduced. Uh, It could be a direct implication of what Scripture says. Now the finality of the sufficient Scriptures. Because the confession goes on, it says, unto which nothing at any time is to be added. Nothing should be treated as on par with the completed Scriptures. (laughs) Whether by new revelation of the Spirit or traditions of men. And uh, here's where they, they bring in Galatians 1, 8-9 as a warning. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Now, you know, most false teachings that claim to be on par with the Bible... They don't usually come in, uh, speaking in a a Christian context, they don't usually come in declaring, we're contradicting the Bible now. Even think of um, the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the Mormons under Joseph Smith and Brigham Young back in the 1800s. They weren't claiming to supplant the Bible, to contradict it. They were claiming to further its message, right? Because they claimed uh, the Holy Spirit was giving new revelation on par with Scripture. <laughs> then, as the system developed, it, of course, became obvious. Oh, yes, this is a different gospel. <laughs> that's, that's the warning. Even if we, even if someone who seems to be an apostle, Paul says, or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. And in that context in Galatians... Again, the Judaizers weren't saying that they were contradicting the gospel. That They said they were in line with the gospel, according to them. But they were bringing a different message. I added in my own text here that the, uh, that the confession uh, doesn't list here. But I think it's good to just briefly, we don't have time to go into this as it's a subject all its own, the finality of sufficient scriptures, But it would be good for us to to remind ourselves of a flow of thought in Scripture here about how there's the Old Testament revelation and the New Testament revelation, and the package is now complete. And it was being wrapped up in the last days of the apostles. Uh, For instance, Hebrews 1, 1 through 2. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. There you have Old Testament days of Revelation. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. And the whole point there, even flowing into chapter 2, as we'll see, is now we have an even better and more complete revelation, which is the final thing that God could reveal to us, because it's not just revealed through angels to the prophets, it's his son directly speaking now. And so this is the New Testament era of Revelation. This this is the final package here. 
So Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels, that Old Testament law, for instance, proved to be reliable and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was, and I think the SV put some punctuation in here that doesn't show how it's all connected. But it says it was this great salvation was declared at first by the Lord and it was attested to us by those who heard while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to his will notice the important um, connection here between this new revelation of the Spirit in the days of Christ and the Apostles and the fact that these men were eyewitnesses of the things they were declaring. So again, you have that Old Testament message uh, referring especially to the law, law of Moses delivered by angels. And then now we have such a great salvation in which God has spoken to us by or in his son. And the whole point in Hebrews is you don't need any more after that, Hebrew Christians. You have the final package deal. Jesus had said to his apostles, John 16, verses 12 through 14, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Now that's an important text to clarify for us when it says God is now spoken to us by his son, it's not just talking about whatever Jesus said in his earthly ministry. It's also talking about the fact that now Christ has sent his spirit to his apostles to complete everything, to give them the complete package of everything they needed to pass on. Notice, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you, apostles, into all the truth. There won't be anything missing. And he's not speaking just on his own authority, but he's uh, what he's hearing in context from the Son, you could say, and from the Father. He will speak. This is the message of the triune God, and he'll declare to you things that are to come. There would be more prophecy, like the book of the Revelation, for instance. But Christ's Spirit has led the apostles and their associate prophets, you could say, in the New Testament era, into all the truth. And he did that in such a way at the foundation of the church that the whole church, wherever wherever it would spread, would have the whole package. So Ephesians 2, 19-21, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation, again, laid in the beginning, on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, the New Testament prophets, like Mark and Luke and Jude. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. By the way, it's going to be really hard um, if the church has grown and gone into all the world. It's going to be really hard for something to be added to that foundation if someone off in Hawaii gets a new revelation of the Spirit and, and this is new scripture now. That's going to be really difficult to then 
suddenly become part of that foundation for the whole body of Christ. <laughs> At any rate, I'm just touching on those themes to remind you of some of the, the flow of logic in Scripture about that. The finality of the sufficient Scriptures. We'll, we'll come back in our application a little bit to that. But then third, the necessity of the Spirit's light. Yes, the, the Scripture is sufficient for these, these things that we listed. But you don't just need you and your Bible. You need the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. It says, nevertheless, we acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God. See, they just mentioned in, in the words before this, um, this idea of new revelations of the Spirit. But they're distinguishing that from the illumination of the Spirit. We acknowledge the inward illumination of the Spirit of God to be necessary. Not only does it still happen... But it's necessary for the saving understanding of such things as are revealed in the word. And they list John 6.45, where Jesus says, It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. That's uh, written in the prophets about the children of Zion, uh, the offspring who are all taught of God in redeemed Zion. And Jesus says, Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. We have to learn from God the Father through his Spirit. And then 1 Corinthians 2, 9-12 through 12 is also listed. But as it is written, what no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. Uh, so Paul just quoted the Old Testament. And then he says, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. For who knows a person's thoughts except the spirit of that person which is in him? So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the spirit of God. Now we have received not the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given us by God. We need the spirit to even understand what's in this sufficient book. And that applies not only to initially coming to saving faith, it also applies to the outworking of our salvation throughout the Christian life. So don't hear this and and uh, just brush it off as, yeah, that's a nice truth. I needed the Holy Spirit to open my eyes to what the Bible was saying so I could be saved in the beginning. No, you still need the Spirit every time you approach the Scriptures. Here I'm going to quote Joel Beakey and Mark Jones from a Puritan theology, Doctrine for Life. Uh, on this topic, they say, John Owen, one of the Puritans, did not mince any words when it came to another fundamental aspect of interpreting the Bible. Those who attempt to interpret the scriptures, quote, in a solemn manner, without invocation of God, without calling on God, to be taught and instructed by his spirit, is a high provocation to him. You're provoking God when you do that, Owen's, Owen is saying. Nor shall I expect the discovery of truth from anyone who so proudly and ignorantly engageth in a work so much above his ability to manage. Owen affirmed that the Holy Spirit works on the minds of the elect so as to enable them to understand the scriptures, since he is the immediate author of all spiritual illumination. Christians cannot assume this will happen, as if to take for granted this spiritual privilege. Rather, they must pray that God would enable them to understand his mind and will, which apart from the Spirit is impossible. 
we should all at least understand that we we all have experienced going to the scriptures thinking we understood them, but we didn't understand them, even as believers. We got something wrong, right? So the Spirit does not automatically, without our asking, sometimes he graciously does it, even though we forgot to ask, <laughs> but he does not automatically necessarily always give us the illumination we really need on a text, even as Christians. He wants us to remember to be humble and to be consciously reliant on him and not think we're doing this ourselves. Look at us go. Again, we'll come back to all this in the application. But fourth, the role of natural light. The paragraph finishes this way. Uh, We acknowledge and that there are some circumstances concerning the worship of God and government of the church common to human actions and societies which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules, that wording is important, according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. And um, two texts that the confession footnotes here, both in 1 Corinthians. First of all, 1 Corinthians 11, verses 13 through 15, where Paul goes from talking about some sort of head coverings or or the way the hair was arranged, something of that nature, to then saying there's a parallel even in nature. 1 Corinthians 11, verse 13, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife, actually, that's just translated for a woman, to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, a lot of contemporary commentaries will find ways to get around what's obviously being said here, (laughs) because because this is so not not cool for Americans and Westerners to hear. Uh, We're so liberated, you know. But the scripture is saying... Now, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't take out the tape measure and give us exact specs. It's just stating a general principle that even you you should even recognize from the way God made things, from nature itself, that men are meant to have shorter hair than women. That's what it says. Now, yeah, don't be that person. What about if a woman has cancer and her hair falls out? Yes, I know. Okay. (laughs) Don't bring up silly objections. But you get the general point. And this is an example where um, the light of nature, as the confession puts it, has a role. Also, 1 Corinthians 14, verses 26 and 40. Verse 26 says, in the context of of, uh, corporate worship, the assembly of God's people and church for worship... What then, brothers, when you come together, um, you're assembling together in that, that formal context, each one has a hymn, a lesson, a revelation, a tongue, or an interpretation. Everyone had their own agenda coming to church in Corinth. <laughs> and it was pretty disorderly because they were all vying to have themselves in the spotlight with, with stuff they had to contribute. Paul says, let all things be done for building up. Or for edification. 
stop focusing on um, being in the limelight in front of everyone. Start focusing on what actually will help build up and encourage and strengthen the body of Christ in an orderly fashion. He rewords that when he said, let all things be done for building up. He rewords that in verse 40 this way. But all things should be done decently and in order. There's a level of, not speaking of it in the technical sense, which philosophy did later, many centuries after Paul, but um, there's a level of common sense Paul is assuming here, right? Uh, Things need to be done decently and in order. And to some extent, each church needs to work that out for themselves, but it has to be decent and in order. And we should have enough sense from the light of nature and from Christian prudence to know what's decent and in order in our context, right? Confession highlights those texts. John Ruther, in uh, a book that just came toward the end of the week, so I barely got this in here, but um, a new exposition of the London Baptist Confession of Faith it was put out by Mentor Books just recently, hot off the press. Um, John Ruther is the one writing on this chapter on Scripture, and he says, The Confession says that there are many factors in the structuring of these requirements for worship that we must work out as God's people under appointed leadership. And what might those things be? They include times and frequency of public meetings, length of meetings, teaching sessions such as Sunday schools, nurseries, Conducting of church business, structuring Christian fellowship, administration of church affairs and aspects of church polity necessitated by individual needs of a local church, follow-up of the people of God, details of evangelistic outreach, etc. He says the confession is not opening the door to the addition of elements in Christian worship that would usurp or detract from the New Testament elements. Churches must safeguard the elements that are revealed. He's right. In the confession, if you compare this to other parts of the confession, um, it's maintaining that Scripture speaks directly to the basic building blocks of what we're to be doing in in worship and how we are to have the church governed. But in the worship and government of the church, there's always going to be details that have to be worked out in our own context, right? And Scripture doesn't speak to every detail directly. So that's what the confession is getting at. Uh, When we say scripture is sufficient for these things, we still acknowledge there's going to be some circumstances of our worship services, government of the church, circumstances, it says, which are common to human actions and societies. Um, That is, we should we should know these sorts of things sometimes from uh, other meetings we we organize and so on, which are to be ordered by the light of nature and Christian prudence according to the general rules of the word, which are always to be observed. Obviously, we can't disobey what the word is clear on in the details. Or Jim Renahan, he says, certain circumstances of worship and government, such as the time, length, and place of meeting for worship on the Lord's Day, the exact form preaching takes. Preachers can really get into it with each other about exactly what's the right way to outline a sermon, you know. Uh, that's that's details, okay? Uh, he goes on, or the specific functions and duties of individual officers in each congregation ought to be determined by the light of nature. Renahan says, meeting at 3 a.m. for worship is contrary to this light. 
Okay, That's what it's talking about. And Christian prudence, the wisdom of the church and its leaders, always according to the general directions of Scripture. And then Renahan also says, such views were not exclusive to the Reformed churches. The general Baptist minister around the same time period, Joseph Wright, helpfully stated that we are to use the directive light of nature, which grace destroys not, but perfects it by supernatural relief, whereby it becomes sufficient to guide us in those things, and the obligation of the church unto it immutably for the ordering all its affairs, as, for example, the times and seasons of her assemblies, the order and decency wherein all things are to be transacted in them, the bounding of them as to the number of the saints, how many people can we fit in this building anyway, exceeding the proportion capable of edification, <laughs> um, especially advantages are to be made of you made use of in the order and worship of the church, such as methods in every duty and preaching, what translation in psalms, which and what tunes in singing, continuance in public duties, and how often the Lord's Supper, how often to take the Lord's Supper, and the like. The things themselves being divinely appointed are capable of such general directions in and by the light of nature, as with ordinary Christian prudence can be, uh, be on all occasions applied and accommodated to the use of practice and profit of the church. Uh, and then he, uh, this Joseph Wright appeals again to 1 Corinthians in various places. But you get the idea. Okay. Applications. <clears throat> As we think about the sufficiency of Scripture and all these uh, clarifications of it, first of all, take pains to understand the Bible lest you miss its necessary implications. Because remember, it says some things may not be expressly set down, they may not be explicitly in, said in words, but they're necessarily contained or directly implied in Scripture. So I'm saying as an application of that, take pains to understand the Bible, lest you miss its necessary implications. If you're lazy in how you study Scripture, you will miss things. You'll miss connections. You'll miss things that are necessarily contained in here for which you are accountable. And of course, I'm preaching to myself as much as anyone because uh, I'm the one currently who gets up here the most often and says that the Bible says thus and so. 2 Timothy 2.15. Come on, ESV, you could have translated it better than this. <laughs> it says, do your best. Really, the idea is take pains to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, rightly handling the word of truth. Do your best, but we kind of say do your best flippantly a lot. So take pains at this to present yourself to God as one approved, a worker who has no need to be ashamed, who doesn't show up and see the... Uh, the work he just did crumbled to the ground in front of him. Rightly handling the word of truth. Cutting it straight. Again, if you're lazy, if you just... Uh, now, there are times to intentionally do a quick reading of Scripture for overall content. But if that's all you do, if you never slow down and notice the details and how they all fit together, you're going to miss stuff that you're accountable for. So just be careful. Second application. 
because you can we can go off on the other direction too in the other direction secondly submit your logic to the bible lest you impose your finite and fallen thoughts upon it you might think some something is a good consequence of scripture when it's not when scripture is not going that direction but you think it is because you already have a line of thought in your head and that's the glasses through which you're reading scripture happens to all of us so submit your logic to the bible make sure your whole thinking process as you're interpreting scripture is filtered over and over again through the rest of what scripture says Submit your logic to the Bible, because if you don't, you're going to impose your own finite, creaturely thoughts on it, and your sinful thoughts, your fallen logic on it. Third, never claim to know God's mind where God is not spoken. If we think about adding to Scripture, we can practically add to Scripture when we claim to know God's mind and God hasn't actually said anything directly on the subject, right? We might do this, as the confession points out, by prophetic claims or or maybe just mystical impressions. I think God's leading me to think this. I have, I have this, maybe you wouldn't call it a feeling, you, you say a leading of the spirit, <laughs> Sometimes all people mean by that is they have an emotional surge or something. I have this impression, and it's really just mysticism sometimes. <laughs> and then, it's especially dangerous when, and we're, we're all going to have feelings, but it can be especially dangerous when people go and tell other people, I have a word from God for you, because <laughs> I had an impression. <laughs> Don't add to scripture. Don't say God's spoken when he hasn't spoken. We can also do this not only by prophetic claims or mystical impressions. We can also do this by respected traditions or or unexamined assumptions. More on this in the last point of application. It'll it'll cross over. But no matter how venerable the the uh, the long history of a doctrine, no matter how venerable the tradition, be sure. It's solidly rooted in Scripture, not just with a few proof texts that were tacked on. Be sure it's rooted in growing organically out of Scripture. A fourth application, thinking about needing the the illumination of the Spirit. Always approach the Bible with humble supplications to its author. You know the one who wrote the Bible. So always, and I'm not being legalistic about this, like if you've if you forget to pray this many times as you're reading scripture, you're in sin. It's not the point. But have this as your frame of mind, and your, as we said this morning, as your constant posture before the Lord. That you're asking him to open your heart and your mind to scripture. Always approach the Bible with humble supplications to its author. The Bible is a sufficient deposit of truth. Yes, but you are not automatically sufficient to properly receive it. The Holy Spirit has to progressively, little by little, sometimes there's big leaps in there, but little by little, he has to open our eyes to all that's in the scripture for us. God gave 
us the Bible as a sufficient tool by which he can personally teach us. This isn't just another textbook or piece of literature. It's a supernatural revelation of the incomprehensible God. So the Bible's nature and its content are way out of our league. To put it mildly. So if we confidently approach the Bible apart from personal communication with its author and reliance on its author, we're fools. As the psalmist said in Psalm 119.18, Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. That should be all of our prayer. Last application, as we think about the details of Scripture does not spell out, it expects us to use the light of nature and Christian prudence. You can call it sanctified common sense. <laughs> um, here's an application that we all have to hear a lot. Be slow to condemn churches and their leaders for their specific application of a biblical principle. I'll say that again. Be slow to condemn churches and their leaders for their specific application of a biblical principle. Now, we can think about this just in our own body, of course. Church members can certainly be disgruntled and nitpicky toward current and potential decision makers in their own church. But you know, I think we're often even freer with our opinions about other churches. How do we talk about sister churches? They don't use the Trinity Hymnal Baptist Edition. What's wrong with them? It, I saw it. It's not a blue hardback. What were they thinking? How could they have missed the gold standard? I don't think it's the gold standard, by the way. But. Or some people on the other side could say they didn't use any modern hymns. Haven't they heard of the Gettys? Or they don't use our preferred Bible translation. They use the NIV. Can you believe it? They use a guitar rather than a piano. They use PowerPoint. There's a guy at the piano wearing a microphone to lead the singing. That's not the way we did it. Obviously, it's unwise. How dare their minister wear a clerical robe, like so many Puritans did, but don't worry, I'm not, I have no plans. <clears throat> Just get that out there. Um, they have a coffee bar in the back. so unspiritual they don't have two worship services on sunday they pass an offering plate we're much more spiritual we have it in the back they didn't buy or build a traditional church building they remodeled a commercial building what where's the reverence there okay now, i'm certainly not saying that any of those decisions should be made mindlessly that's not the point I'm just saying we should be slow to judge such decisions, especially since we're rarely, we rarely know all the factors that went into the decision. Even when we know the person, let alone when we don't really even know the people. 
Remember, the Spirit of God has not given a direct command about such things. So if a church, uh, now this is important, of course, if a church is obviously serious about God's direct commands for its worship and fellowship, that's all important. If they are serious about that, then maybe we need to get off our high horse, stop looking for specks of dust in other people's eyes, and mind our own business. Do we really want other Christians to take the same snooty magnifying glass to us? To how to do our job? To how to choose a school? To how to buy a vehicle or choose a house or form a budget? Or make our own household rules? Or make a menu plan? Oh, but you say, well, that's, that's different. Because everything a church does is incredibly important in God's eyes. Yes. And whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, you have to do it all to the glory of God. That's a heavy responsibility. I'm not erasing the distinction at all here between the regulative principle of worship and the rest of life. Don't hear that. But just because you have to do everything to the glory of God doesn't mean you have no freedom to work out the details according to biblical wisdom even when it looks different from other Christians' decisions. So you want to be biblical? Well, Jesus told you how to be biblical on these sorts of details. Matthew seven twelve, Whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We don't want people to be um, sanctimonious towards us. And turn up their nose at every little decision we make as a church? Let's not do it to them. You you know the context of this, that we do, it's not like it's a free-for-all, and we think every church is just fine, whatever they want to do. No, not at all. But you know we can really pendulum swing, and especially Reformed Baptists, we're very good, and this is the strength, we are very good at details being serious about the details but we're also sinners and we any any strength we turn into a weakness too so let's be careful let's follow the the law of christ which is to love our neighbor as ourself and let someone else's servant stand before their master (laughs) without our opinion necessarily interfering Thank you for your attention. We're out of time. Uh, next time, plan to go to paragraph 7, and I think there will be a, even more good applications for us. Let's bow together in prayer, shall we? Father, we thank you for your all-sufficient word, all-sufficient for life and godliness, for your glory, for our salvation. And thus it speaks to everything in some way. Help us not to to shut out the light of Scripture from any corner of our life. Help us to uh, understand how to properly apply Scripture's sufficiency. And Lord, we ask that you would be pleased with us um, as we properly respond to your word for Jesus' sake. We pray this in his name. Amen.